1: Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog, ArsCast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're keeping safe and well. Hope everything is okay with you and yours, in your world, wherever you are. Thank you very much indeed for being here. Thanks for listening as ever. It is a busy, busy, busy show today. So much so that it could have been made by bees. Because bees, as we know, are particularly busy, as are ants. But Ants, they don't do good podcasts. Anyway, like I said, it's a busy show. We have got some discussion of midweek Carabao Cup action, the players who were on the pitch and some of the players who weren't on the pitch. We've got some insight into our brand new goalkeeping signing, Alex Runerson. So we'll be talking to somebody who has interviewed him and who knows his career journey from Iceland To Arsenal, we'll have some Liverpool chat a bit later on with one of the lads from the Anfield Wrap to give us a a bit of flavour, you might say, ahead of Monday night's uh, clash at Anfield, in which Arsenal will be looking to make it three wins in a row against the Premier League champions. This one, I think, will be a little bit different from the last one. Of course, there are Premier League points to play for, the Community Shield, etc., etc. But anyway, we'll be talking about that. As well as that, we've got a chance for you to win one of two T-shirts um, from 44T.com, com an Arsenal t-shirt for you. So it's all in here between now and the end of uh, this particular show. So, you know, stay tuned for all that kind of crack, as they say. We are going to start with what went on in midweek, though. Arsenal beating Leicester 2-0 uh, at the King Power Stadium in the third round of the Carabao Cup. Now, I've spoken on this podcast and I think I've written on the website about how for me, anyway, it's kind of interesting to hear Mikel Arteta talking to the players in the games because there's no fans, there's no crowd noise. There was no crowd noise in the broadcast that I um, uh, uh, discovered, came across just uh, by accident on the internet. It was just it was just there. I just you know, picked it up and I didn't know whose it was. So I just, you know, anyway. Um, but, you know, there was no crowd noise and that hasn't been for the Premier League games for me. And you can hear Mikel Arteta talking to the players in the various languages that he does. The other night, though, to listen to too much of Brendan Rogers for my liking, it wasn't, wasn't the same as listening to, to Arteta bark out instructions in Spanish and then in French and then in English and, and what have you. The, this flitting between the many languages that he speaks. But Brendan Rogers, I didn't realize this. And maybe you didn't realize this either, but his, his managerial style on the sideline is like somebody talking to their dog. Because all you hear is him
2: saying, good boy. Oh, good boy. Good. Oh, who's a good boy? Oh, you're a very good boy. Yes, you are. You're a great boy. Brandon loves you. You're a great boy. Good boy. Good boy. Kind of creeped me out a little bit, I have to say. I'm,
1: I'm tempted next time we're playing Leicester to put the fake crowd noise on. So I didn't enjoy that bit, although I did enjoy the Leicester midfielder, whose name sounded like a Channel 5 version of Downton Abbey, *Jewsbury Hall. I think it was his debut as well, so congratulations to him, but all I could think about was butlers and servants and top hats and carriages and vast open lawns and estates every time he got the ball. Uh, that could be my issue, though. And certainly not his. Anyway, to talk more about what went on on Wednesday night, I'm delighted to welcome from Football London, it is James Benj. Hello, James.
3: Hi, Andrew. How you doing?
1: I'm all right, thanks. Now, I know that much of the focus after this game was on a certain someone, and perhaps we'll talk about that certain someone in a few minutes' time, but... Uh, I think there were things from this particular uh, game, even if it wasn't the most exciting one in the world, that we could look at and talk about, uh, which don't involve a certain someone. And I think what occurs to me is that this is, despite the fact it was a Carabao Cup game, a game in which Arsenal started five End Academy graduates. Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Bakayo Saka, Reese Nelson, Joe Willock, Eddie Nketiah. That's a really positive thing, uh, you know, for a club like Arsenal. I know that this has been often the case with the the Carabao Cup that young players are are used in this competition, the League Cup, whatever it used to be called. But these aren't really um, just youth players anymore. They're sort of young and up and coming players in the first team squad, and I think that's a really positive thing to look at.
3: Yeah, it's interesting that you, you picked that out, out because I kind of really didn't notice it before the game. It just felt natural. And then you kind of have to do take – you do take that step back and you go, wow, half of the team here is is players that are homegrown from Arsenal. And you, equally, you know, there are some supporters that have doubts about maybe one or two, whichever of those players – but you, you never, you you knew what you were going to get from them. You knew that there would be, you know, intensity. That Nketiah would be constantly looking for those runs in behind. Nelson, I thought, was he played like someone with a point to prove, which obviously uh, he does have a point to prove. Um, mm. He's not particularly desperate to go out on loan. Um, it's interesting to see someone like Joe Willock just establishing himself as reliable. And I think going back to what you said, one of the the really important things that Arteta and actually to an extent Emery as well has done, is, is blooded these players often enough that we as supporters, as followers of Arsenal, we know what we're going to get and they know what they know what they can deliver, what's expected of them. It was really interesting after the game Joe Willock was talking about, it. he just felt absolutely empowered to pop into Michael Arteta's office and um, ask him, boss, how do you see me playing this midfield role alongside El Neni? What, what is it you want from me? You know what they're bringing you. Willock brings you that the intensity, that verticality. His is final passes sometimes a little bit astray, but it's great to, to have these players you can just rely upon. That you've you've grown you've grown yourself. Um, grown is probably not the right word, but sure. you know what I mean.
1: I know what you mean. And I think what's interesting is they all kind of bring something a little bit different and I know I realize that they're different players playing in different positions but what I mean by that is that Malon Niles has the ability to play left and right fullback or wing back Saka we don't quite know what he's going to be uh, the Tim Stillman campaign to make him our our third midfielder is well and truly underway and you can see some logic in that in the way that he plays in Keddie a penalty box striker different from from Lacazette maybe not quite as different from Aubameyang as Aubameyang used to be in terms of where he he used to finish from but he's very much a penalty box striker Joe Willick, far from the finished article, I'll accept, but but, you know, he's the kind of midfielder who, and there was an an example of this last night, where he made a really good tackle deep in our half, and the Mm. ball worked forward, and then all of a sudden he was essentially the furthest, one of the furthest men forward. He was certainly the furthest midfielder forward, so that ability he has to contribute between the boxes and, you know, I don't want to say he's a box-to-box midfield player, but he really likes to get forward and get into the box, which isn't the case with an Almany or Ajaka, for example.
3: Willock is, and uh, and Nelson are the two I find the most intriguing because the, the thing with your Saka's and your Inketi is you already see a, a role for them. I don't know if Nketiah will be Arsenal's number nine long term, but you know you can see them building a healthy career at Arsenal. Um, Willock and Nelson, you know, they, they're already this. They seem to prompt a lot of debates, and I think sometimes there's a frustration over a lack of end product from the pair of them. That, that seems to not go hand-in-hand hand with the fact these are guys that have played 50, 60 games for Arsenal at most. And while that's a, a healthy amount, that they're pretty much the only professional games they've played. I would be really intrigued to see what happens with willock because I can't quite put my finger on what his career could end up being. He, he, he could be. I, I look at him and think he could be a, a starting mid, central midfielder for Arsenal one day. Equally, you know, if things don't quite go right with him, if he doesn't develop in the right way, you know, I can see him not really making it that that high in the Premier League. He seems to be one with a lot of variance. But what I love about him is it is just that dynamism, something that that Arsenal midfield is really lacking. And you know, we'll talk about transfers maybe, but you know, that Thomas Partey is the only one that you know on that list as well that could could bring a, a verticality like what Willock has, but you know, I've, I haven't seen him in the under-23s as well. If he gets in and around the box, he can score goals. You know, he he does make good tackles. It's always going to be tough for him because he's not going to have a run of games. He's never going to, or not this season, he's not going to displace Xhaka, Ceballos and anyone else that comes in. Mm. So the challenge now is how do you develop someone like that with minimal time, when he might be, only be playing once every two, three weeks, and make sure he doesn't kind of go lower in your estimations and and not develop quite in the right way because I think if if you were in a position to give him game time consistently you could make something really special out of Willock I think he's got all the raw ingredients for a a good Premier League player.
1: I tend to agree with that and I know a lot of people are a bit doubtful about Joe Willock and I can understand why. I, I think sometimes we forget that he's only 20 and you look back at some of the midfielders who've made it at Arsenal down the years and I don't even mean in recent memory but, you know, it, it can take a bit longer than being just 20 years of age, before your your game is refined, before you develop properly. I mean, he did score more goals than any other central midfielder for us last season. I know a lot of them were in cup competitions, but he does have that ability and that ability to arrive in the box. And, you know, people bemoan the absence of someone like Aaron Ramsey, a central midfield player who can get forward and score. He is the guy who can do that. What I would say, though, is I think this is true of him, and I think it's true of... um Reese Nelson, as well, is that they're kind of at a turning point. And I think you're right to say that perhaps they're not going to get the run of games that they need to develop in the way that we might want them to develop at Arsenal for the future, unless maybe they go out on loan. And I know that Arteta wasn't going to be drawn by Reese Nelson. He was asked about it uh, after the game, whether he'd be going out on loan and said, look, we're not going to discuss internal things. I think the same could be true of Joe Willock, that if you do or if Arsenal do make the kind of midfield signings that we as fans want them to make, it it means the pathway for Willock right now is certainly a little blocked off. So he is somebody I think who who um, can do enough for us in league cup, in Carabao Cup, in FA Cup, and and this sort of particular substitutes role that he seems to play under Arteta. Equally, though, I think he uh, along with Nelson. Could benefit more, perhaps, from regular first-team football, whether that's in the Premier League or even Championship.
3: I really agree, um, and it's it's a tough decision because you want these these players to to develop at Arsenal to be one club men, um, you know, to to come fully formed like Saka has. But people, players like Saka are once in a generation, and you can still mould. Nelson um, and Willock into top players, but it's just if, at some stage, if if you want to trust them to play 38 games for Arsenal, you need to know how they cope with playing 38 games in a season.
2: Mm.
3: You're not you're not in a position to try and work that out with Willock. I would, I would be really intrigued to see him in a maybe not even a particularly easy on the eye, a more robust Premier League team where he's. You know he's having to learn his tackling, um, and but they, you know, not a team where he he needs to play the Arsenal way because I think at the moment he can sometimes be brushed off the ball a bit easily. He's someone that you can get at. It's not what like he was when he he first came into the team under Wenger, but I think he needs to to work maybe a little bit more on that physical side of him. For Nelson, it's just about it's just about having a run of games so that every time he plays, he doesn't feel like. He has to make the big impression. He has to have the standout moment. Yeah, um, and I thought that was really apparent with Nelson last night. Was he felt it felt a bit like he was forcing things, and he can force things. That that early shot that that hit the um, the top of the bar was was really fantastic. It was a great move, and you saw there Saka was begging for the ball on the outside, but Nelson was very much like, yeah. you know, I am going here. I, I, it felt almost unfortunate for Nelson that he has one of the best young players in Europe. Outside him on the left flank because it, it's so much harder to, for, for Nelson to shine when there's such a brilliant young star next to him. Yeah, the game time for him will come. I know, I spoke to a few people who know him well throughout the summer, and for most of the summer, the view was Reece really doesn't want to go. Uh, he wants to, he, he knows that Arteta rates him highly and he wants to get his chances. His dream, obviously, is to play for Arsenal week in, week out. I think though when the season gets going, the harsh realities of Arsenal needing to win every football match they play kind of hit hit you for six if you're someone like Nelson mm. and there's just no space for you on the bench. And there are a lot of Premier League teams where there would at the very least be a space on the bench for him. And I think get someone like Nelson out there, get him playing week in, week out. We've seen with a run of games at Hoffenheim, he can He can do great things and I still would not be anywhere near thinking about selling these two. Get them game time and see where you are again in a season.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, Let's talk Saka though because he is just such an exciting talent, isn't he? I know people... Look, the short-term nature of the way we look at games and analyse games and analyse what's going on at a football club, you know, he, he signed his new contract. He didn't really play a great deal after that, but he did play in the Community Shield. He didn't really feature in the in the first two games, but then he's in the team last night, and, uh, you know, he, he was extremely impressive, I think. He just has this ability in a game which was mundane, I think, in general, um, mm. for various reasons, he just has this ability to spark, to bring something to the team, to create space, to create danger. He should have had a penalty. Quite how that wasn't given, I don't know. It looked as clear-cut a penalty as you'll see to me, but there there you go. Things like that happen. But just that, that I don't know, it's just that there's a sort of maturity with the way he plays when you consider his age, when you consider his relative Inexperience that just makes me so optimistic about what he can do in another year's time or two years time or as he starts to develop, you know, in his early twenties when when players um, like him really start to find their feet.
3: I think you hit the nail on the head there with maturity, and that is always the thing that stands out for me. I thought the penalty was a great example of this. He reacted. Like a player who's had this foul committed on him a hundred times before, and ninety-nine times he'd got a penalty, and there was the you know mm. the willingness to to ball out the referee, um, the frustration which you you just tend not to see in younger players, and you tend not to see younger players that consistently make the right decision. Um, I struggle to think of a moment um, in Saka's game last night, and kind of looking back on it throughout Saka's Arsenal career, where I've just gone. Because you've you've just made the wrong decision there. Sometimes the execution isn't quite there, but he's he's 19. God, he's not even 20. That will come. But mm. there, there was another moment um when Arsenal kind of did a reverse of that Abamian goal, and they drew the press from Leicester, and immediately the ball went to Saka, and I found myself thinking two things: one, Saka is the man I want carrying the ball forward in that scenario if I'm. Arteta and I have that team. He's the one I, I know will make the right decision, and he did. He made, he you know skipped out. I think it was four attackers to play the ball immediately outright to Pepe. He didn't quite get the pass right. It was a really difficult pass, but as we saw in the Community Shield, he can he can make those passes and he can uh, set up Bamiang and he, he might well have set up Pepe. But for some good Leicester defending, he is he's just a player that I get excited whenever he picks the ball up. Um And he's able to look forward you, he's the sort that that you can't help but kind of indulge in a little bit of hyperbole about it. and you start thinking back to the other arsenal young players that have excited you over the years, and you start thinking about what it was like when Wilshire came into the team and I don't really think there's any any shame in that because you know this is the the joy of young players entering into a team is there's so much promise there's so much hope, and you think. God, you know, I mean, I know they've only got him tied down for four years now, but you just think the next four years with Bukayo Saka in this team, mm. it could be so much fun, at least until we get to the stage where every transfer window he's being linked to Barcelona and Real Madrid, <laughs> which I'm sure will come because... This guy's something else.
1: Yeah, he really is. And I think that, you know, to me is one of the real positive parts of of Wednesday night and the young players that we have at the team. I know there's so much focus on players who aren't in the team right now. And I I can understand. I do understand why that is the case. I just think sometimes you get a bit too hung up on that and don't take enough time to appreciate what we do have on the pitch. You know, which isn't to say it can't be improved, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, a 19-year-old kid of that talent coming through at Arsenal is just so exciting. So, um, you know, I think he's going to give Mikel Arteta plenty to think about this season and, you know, how he's involved and how he's um, worked into the team on a more regular basis is is one of the more fascinating aspects of, of what's to come. Going over to the other side, Nicholas Pepe, his first start. He's been kept out of the team in the first two Premier League games by Ann. What did you make of of his performance? Um, I know he was involved in the goal, or the opening goal, and it was good strength and good persistence and perseverance and a little bit of good fortune when the ball uh, went in off Christian Fuchs. But it seems strange yeah. to say that a £72 million signing has got something to prove to a manager or, or what have you. But um, it feels like he kind of does just at the moment.
3: I just, I can't. I can't put my finger on it, and it's it's frustrating that you have to see him through the price tag. But when the price tag brings with it such opportunity costs of things that could have been done elsewhere, it's only fair to to judge Pepe at the standards of a seventy-two million pound player. Particularly going into year two, there can't be the same mitigating circumstances that there were there were last season. And I also kind of have to remind myself that at the end of last season, he was very very good. Yeah. I thought the the FA Cup final was his best game in an Arsenal shirt and I was really excited to see how how season two went for him Um, and this is only an early, early view of him I I worry that, (laughs) this is the other thing about the price tag, I worry how much that weighs on him Do you think it does? Other things weigh on him My mind keeps going back to what he said after the Man United game away last season where he's quite open about how he struggles with his confidence a little bit. And, um, you know, that it, it, all the talk about him weighs on him. And there has obviously been talk with him being out of the side. And I kind of think that got to him. And I felt like last night he was forcing it a little bit. Uh, he, he was, much like Nelson, he was constantly looking to make that big impact, to, to take on three players and score. Uh, But then when he got to the position to score, there was that chance in the first half. He didn't quite seem sure of himself. Um, Part of that just comes down to this fundamental fact that he really doesn't seem to have much of a right foot at all. Uh, Yeah,
1: I was going to stop you here and just, I was going to ask you about this next, but you've touched on it. So when he plays in the position that he plays in, you know, I look at him, pick up the ball and... I kind of know what he's going to do, right? I know uh, that he doesn't like using his right foot for very much at all. Um, He is very one-footed. And when you're playing in that position, in this particular system, it means that you are extremely predictable for opposition defences. Which isn't to say that he isn't a very talented footballer. He is and he's got some lovely skills and he can produce really nice moments and And we see that when he's got time on his left foot in the right positions, he's capable of scoring brilliant goals, he's capable of creating goals as he did towards the end of last season for Aubameyang. It looked like there was a good partnership happening there. Um, but there was a sort of sameness, if you like, about where he is effective. So could Mikel Arteta be thinking about potentially using him somewhere else to make him less predictable and perhaps a little bit more effective? Or if we leave him where he is on that right-hand side, playing like this, where a lot of the time he's going to be facing up defenders rather than, as he did at Lille very often, run into space where there were no defenders and then coming in on his left foot and scoring goals made him look uh, a brilliant counter-attacking player, which he was there. You know, it's, it's a different kind of football for him. So how much is the onus on the manager to use him in a way which might get something different out of him?
3: It's, it's a real challenge. And I remember before lockdown, Arteta talked about working hard with him on him being able to do more than just that one thing. There was a moment as well, it was around the Brighton game where he 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 committed for a while to trying to beat players on the outside, even if it was mostly with his left foot. And that made him really effective. I remember in that Brighton game, almost every run he did was outside his fullback. And by the time he scored, you know, the, the fullback wasn't quite sure which way he was going.
2: Mm.
3: I fear that if you park him on the left, you'll end up with the same problem except he when he goes on his left foot, he's drifting away from goal. <laughs> It is a real challenge. The, the the thing is, there are still good things that, that Pepe does, and, and much like the other player that we'll come on to talk about. I think when, when you question him, certain supporters and, and certain people on social media assume that you are saying he's a bad player. I, I don't think Pepe's a bad player at all, and I think I'm sure that there will, there will be a, a system with time that you can construct that can get the best out of Pepe. Off the top of my head, I don't know what it is, but, you know, I'm not paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a week to work that out, mm. um, whereas Arteta is. And he's, he's worthy of perseverance because, as you say, this is a guy that can finish any chance when it, it comes his way on his left foot. Um, I, don't, I just don't know what the answer is. I, I find it confusing that Arteta doesn't use his, his right-sided wing-back as much to overload, mm. you know, to have a Bellerin or a maitland Nas go on the outside. Um, and that kind of distracts the, the fullback and allows Pepe to drift in a bit more. Because at the moment, it just feels like this team, the, the strongest eleven, is so set up to allow a Bamiyang to cut inside that it kind of just the acceptance there is: well, we'll have to negate Pepe doing that on the other flank because you can't quite have two people doing that exact same thing, or the, the middle gets congested. Yeah. Maybe it's just, maybe the, the hardest thing is is that. Is having um, a Bamiang on, off the left, just kind of it then doesn't work with Pepe. I don't know. Mm. You, you have to persevere with him because you've invested an awful lot in him, and he is a talented player. But I don't quite see how with the current team and the current formation, I don't quite see anything that makes me think we're going to get the leap. Anytime soon. I hope I'm wrong, um, but I don't see that leap coming off the basis of the last couple of games.
2: Mm.
1: It is going to be very interesting. You know, people people had doubts over, um, you know, aspects of his game last season. And I can understand that. I think there were good things about him. And I think, you know, that he finished with our, uh, I think it was our second most productive player when you combine goals and assists. I think he had a lot to deal with last season, a new country, all of those things, as you mentioned previously, the mitigating factors. They're not there now, or they shouldn't be quite as um pronounced now, because I think, Um, we are looking for him to produce on a more consistent basis it's just it's just difficult to see quite how um, it's going to happen considering how easy at times it it seems to be to play against him and maybe that's to do with what's around him as well and everything else but it's there's a What am I going to say? I think there is a a sort of a weight on him this season to really show, and I don't like using the price tag because it's done now, it's done and dusted, but um, to show that that he can be a regular, consistent first-team player for Arsenal. So... Uh, it it is one of the many challenges that Mikel Arteta faces uh, this season. Just very finally, I know we we probably shouldn't, but we might as well. Given you did ask the first question about Mesut Ozil not being in the team or in the squad last night, Mikel Arteta very um, <laughs> he said, "I'm very happy with the players who were here, or whatever it was." I mean, he didn't even uh dignify not dignify but he didn't want to talk about Mesedozil uh, some of your um journal journalist colleagues followed up and we did get a little bit more from him um, about the uh, the absence of Mesedozil I guess um like many of us you don't know definitively what's happening so I don't think we can talk in any great detail about mm. it but would it be reasonable to suggest that if Mesedozil can't get into the Arsenal squad for a Carabao Cup game against Leicester on a Wednesday night, the week before we go to Anfield and play Liverpool, it's extremely difficult, barring some kind of crisis or injury crisis or whatever it might be, to see how he's involved for anything more substantial.
3: Yeah, I can't say it. I mean, this is Arsenal, um, and we—you know—I've learned never to try and predict anything because something bizarre will happen, but. It's just, it's 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 been and gone. Um, I I don't really think he will he will feature again. Uh, I think you know going back to the the press conference because I know Urzel is divisive. And but believe me, when we ask questions about Messer Urzel, we we're acutely aware that for some people this is the biggest issue at Arsenal. For others, it's an irrelevance now because they're of kind of the view of of, of some within the club that why are we still talking about this? is not part of the plans. I just would. I just think it's very important that for the supporters who through Sky Sports subscriptions and through their, their season tickets until this season have kind of helped pay those wages, and just also because it, it's not conducive to to anyone to just keep this as a, a strange, vaguely secretive approach. There just needs needs to be a little bit more clarity from Arteta, and right now he doesn't really have any excuse for not giving that. Clarity, he's now the first team manager it, it's up to him to explain these things now, not not Raul Sanye not really Edu either
2: mm-hmm.
3: and they, um, Arteta and Edu have both alluded to questions over his training um, but it's a lot of alluding to things, it's a lot of half answers and we we get halfway to an answer but then that that doesn't serve supporters well that doesn't serve the media well doesn't really serve Arsenal well it would be very helpful to just bring a little bit of clarity to this, even if it's just to say, look, you know, it, it might, doesn't have to be (laughs) complete truth. If you just say, Messert's in the final year of his contract, we don't intend to offer him an extension. He knows that. Um, And for that reason, we want to look at players with a long-term future. Well, that's fine that, you know, you're not, you're not spoiling uh, anything. You're not giving anything away. You're not, acting improperly mm. it just if, if Mikel Arteta really doesn't enjoy answering these questions about Ozil the best thing to do is just to answer it once and it's much more likely to go away because I'm certain that in his pre-Liverpool press conference he's going to be asked about Ozil again because the sense is he hasn't given a convincing answer on it and I'm sorry I know, I know that you, Mikel wants to talk about tactics and he wants to talk about um, you know Liverpool and what, how you know things like that. But ultimately, there is a lot of interest out there in Erzul. It's important. He's the best pay, paid player at the club. Some degree of clarity would help an awful lot. It would help Arsenal, and it would it would help their supporters. But yeah. Mm. Uh, The question won't go away until he gets a clear answer. But ultimately, I don't think we're going to see him back on the pitch unless there's some remarkable injury crisis.
1: Yeah. Look, I I can't disagree with that. The clarity would be extremely useful for everybody. You might wonder if there's a reason why everything is being kept so vague that we're not um, aware of, but then you're sort of venturing into these... I don't mean to say conspiracy theories but when there are gaps we as fans and supporters and everything else we we try and fill them with with the knowledge or the information that we have and um you know the difficulty um from an Arsenal perspective of course is that he is a big star he is a huge following uh, there are people who love him there are people who don't love him uh, and that's why this thing continues on. So whether we'll get that clarity or not this season, at some point, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, for now, though, James, we better leave it there. Thank you very much as always.
3: Thank you. Imagine
0: if you could shop the shelves of all your local liquor stores at the same time. Well, spoiler alert, you can with Drizzly, the number one alcohol delivery app. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code SAVE5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D R I Z L Y.com. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy
1: Thank you very much indeed to James. You can find him on Twitter at JamesBench, at JamesBench, and of course writing about Arsenal and other stuff too at football.london. Stay tuned for your chance to win. A shirt One of two t-shirts we've got to give away from 440s.com. We'll give you the details of how to enter that competition in a few minutes time. First though, we're going to talk a little bit about the new signing that we made this week. Uh, goalkeeper Alex Runerson who is in to replace Emi Martinez who joined Aston Villa. Of course, he came to us from Dijon for a fee of around 1.5 million pounds. An Icelandic international and it's fair to say his time in France in Liga did not go particularly well, however, what was his journey from Iceland to Arsenal. What came in between? What do we know about Alex Runerson, his career, his character, and all the rest? Well, to help us with that, I'm delighted to welcome to the show, Matt McGinn. Hi, Matt, how are you?
4: Hi, very well, thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: My pleasure. Um, just to give me uh, give people a bit of background on you, you've written a book called Against the Elements, The Eruption of Icelandic Football. But before we go into the how and the why of that, what's your sort of background in general, in uh, general? In sort of football terms, and and your sort of um, your fan outlook, if you like,
4: my fan outlook is is the outlook of an MK Dons fan, so right. generally a a uh, pessimistic and uh, downbeat outlook. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> um, but it, in terms of my relationship with football, um, I've, I've worked previously in journalism, and I'm now doing a PhD which looks to football and identity in Galicia, in uh, in northwest Spain. Right. So. A little bit all over the place, uh, but that's what I'm doing at the moment.
1: Okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting part of the world as well, uh, and the football teams that are up there. So you're talking Celta Vigo, La Coruña, De- Deportivo, those teams?
4: Exactly, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, big, you know, I think Arsenal played... Arsenal played Celta a couple of decades ago, perhaps? You're probably 15
1: um, years ago at this point, yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah, both teams that, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s were... Uh, a pretty big force in Spain and in Europe, but mm. now have, have sunk a bit lower, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, there. I mean, there is. I think uh, Silvino, um left Arsenal to sign for Celta Vigo when there were some uh, issues over his passport. All of a sudden, one summer. So there, there is a little connect uh, connection there. But and we did bring in Lucas Perez, a player who, who uh, played for Deportivo, a big uh, Deportivo hero, or he was anyway. So
4: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, tell me this though, what? drew you to Icelandic football and writing a book about Icelandic football beyond just how much fun they were in the tournaments (laughs) and beating England and all of that kind of stuff why did you take it further than most people who just went this is great what 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 made you decide to write a book
4: I suppose it was born out of a curiosity of what Iceland had achieved and how they'd done it Mm. Um, I think we were all aware or most of us football fans were aware You know, going back to Euro 2016 and even before that, 2013, when Iceland came really close to qualifying for the Brazil World Cup but just lost out in a playoff to Croatia, I think it it piqued a lot of people's interest about how this was possible to be done for a a nation that's so small. You know, the parallels that are often done to you know it's the equivalent population of Croydon or Leicester or somewhere (laughs) like that to put it in perspective. Um, and, And then my interest in terms of writing the book came. in in 2017, at which which point I was working in Madrid for a Spanish newspaper, working an evening shift, um, and and the TV was set to the channel that nips around the different World Cup qualifiers, depending on where the goals are going in. Mm. And it kept going back to Iceland against Turkey, because Iceland kept scoring, and they ran out as 3-0 winners in Turkey. And that result, although it didn't quite secure their place at the World Cup, it, it made it very probable. Um, and and I, I wanted to read more about it. I was fascinated by by the story. Found that nobody had written a book about it, and thought that I'd I'd, I'd fill that opportunity.
1: So, what what was the process of, of putting that book together? A lot of interviews, um, trips to Iceland, talking to a lot of people. Um, I mean, how did you how did you start? Um, you know, what was the genesis of it? And and you know in broad terms, I guess, without wanting to give any spoilers away or anything like that, because people can go and they can get the book and, and everything else. But, you know, where where did this start for Iceland and, and how did it develop into what it became?
4: Um, I think that, I mean, there's a lot of layers to it, mm. which I go into in the book. I, I think essentially Icelandic culture and society are set up very well to allow people to succeed. I think um, it's a very difficult place to live historically and I think that creates a certain mentality in the population that endures now even though it's you know by, by pretty much any measure a very wealthy country and, and somewhere that's a, a good place to grow up um, and I think socially if you look at the political system it's a social democracy that allows people to pursue their interests and, and provides financial aid to do that um, and that's why if you look at music, football, uh, weightlifting, all these different kinds of fields, Iceland produces way more talented people than it should do. Mm. Um, so so that's, I suppose, the book, you know, looks into things like that. It looks into maybe slightly more obvious factors like investment in facilities, which means that football is now a year-round game, uh, investment in coach education. So Iceland is littered with UEFA-licensed coaches. Um, so it's, a, it's really a coming together of... Uh, you know cultural deep-rooted cultural factors followed by lots of very good decisions at a governance level mm. over the course of two decades.
1: So let's talk about Alex Runerson then and uh, he's somebody who you interviewed for the book uh, he has some Icelandic caps and we'll talk about that in a moment as well but um, in terms of where he's come from as a footballer what what can you tell us about that?
4: He comes from from good footballing stock mm. so he's uh, his dad is Runa Christensen, who is the most capped player for Iceland. He's a midfielder in the, in the 90s, predominantly. Uh, and the, I think the only Icelander with more than 100 caps. So, yeah, he, I mean, he comes from, from very good footballing lineage in Iceland. Uh, and as a result of his, of his father being a professional footballer, he had quite a nomadic childhood. So I think he spent the first three years of his life in Sweden, then moved to Norway, and then from five to 12, he was in Belgium and then back to Iceland after that. So although he is an Icelandic international, I think his his formative years as a footballer probably had wider influences.
1: How has that been of benefit to him? Because one of the things I think we, we um, sometimes overlook in a footballer's education is the, the sort of human element, the human development as well, and young English players... You know, they don't go abroad very often. Their, their horizons aren't as broadened as young Spanish kid, young French kid who comes to England, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know. I guess there's some sort of um similarity between uh, Icelandic culture and and Sweden uh, Norway that kind of uh that kind of place um but I mean has that had an impact on um the way he's learned the game or his connection with that Icelandic culture that you've spoken about I mean I presume that's instilled in him by his father anyway but you know not growing up around it
4: Yeah I think it's absolutely instilled in him from from what I gleaned when I spoke to him, I think on a technical level, I think it was quite beneficial to him as a young goalkeeper to be in Belgium. Um, he, he told me that at that time, Iceland now, uh, the coaching infrastructure has, has moved on a level from a decade or, or so ago when mm. he would have been coming through. And at that time, there weren't necessarily that many dedicated goalkeeping coaches in Iceland. Whereas in Belgium, they were set up to to coach that, that speciality. So he he certainly believes that he benefited from that. I think in terms of adaptability, I think most most Icelanders tend to be fairly adaptable to living abroad. It's it's you know migration is a big part of Icelandic culture. Whether it's internal migration, going back going back looking into the past when people would move around the country depending on where the crop harvests were, and then going out to sea and things like that. Uh, Icelanders have always been and continue to be pretty good at. Uprooting and moving to another place, and I think, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly can't hurt with his adaptation to a, a new country that he's already got experience of moving around a fair bit.
1: Yeah, true. I mean, he started his career in Iceland and has moved to Denmark, France, and and now he's in uh, England with with Arsenal. Um, I mean, what were those early years like in Icelandic football?
4: So he stayed. He stayed slightly later than most young Icelanders tend to. So he was at a club called KR, which is a big historic club in Reykjavik. And he stayed until, I think, close to his 19th birthday, which is later than the trend that you tend to see. Most Icelandic youngsters will go abroad at 16 if, if they're, mm. you know, of a sufficient calibre, because that's the age when they get a scholarship in a foreign academy. So he hung around slightly later, which meant he he finished his education in Iceland and maybe was slightly more mature by the time he left. Yeah, I mean, yeah, perhaps that that's had some sort of impact on him. I think he he actually became a goalkeeper fairly late as well. Um, he was telling me that he had appendicitis when he was about eleven, and uh, as a result of that, after the after the operation, he was out for four months. And when he came back, all of the other kids had grown a bit and matured a bit, and he was quite weak post-op, obviously. So. Uh, Along with his parents, he took the decision to move back from midfield, where he'd been playing previously, emulating his dad, mm. into into the goalkeeping position. And, uh, and he really enjoyed it, so he stayed there.
1: That's uh, an interesting transition. I mean, it's not unusual for players to, to move positions when they start out. I think there was um, some talk of Nicolas Pepe, who's Arsenal's um, record signing, starting life as a goalkeeper before moving out outfield to become a, a winger but in terms of um, what he's done uh, in Iceland and then moving out to to Denmark where he began a relationship with someone who was fundamental in bringing him to Arsenal who's the, the goalkeeping coach in Yaki Kanye Pavon did he have other options or was that sort of seen as a natural transition at that point to go from Iceland to Denmark
4: yeah Iceland to Denmark Sweden Norway is a pretty mm. well-trodden path that's the the typical path for you know a young Icelandic footballer is to go to Scandinavia and then try and find your feet there and then move on to the bigger leagues. Um, I think you mentioned Innyaki Kanya. I think not not only was he fundamental in bringing bringing him to Arsenal, I think it was also quite important in his development while he was playing in Denmark. So he he talks a lot about how he'd have these extensive video analysis sessions after each game with with Kanye Kanya, and how how um, as a coach he's quite focused on the mental side which i think is arguably more important for goalkeepers than any other position mm. so what i mean by that is that he he helped runer alex with dealing with making mistakes which is you know it's, it's inevitable it's an inevitable part of being a goalkeeper even the best ones will occasionally have a an absolute howler mm. and he said Kanye was good at um allowing him to place those mistakes in perspective and realised that he could make it. You know, he could he could lose his team three points on the Saturday, but on the Sunday, he'd still wake up and have breakfast. And the world doesn't stop, and you you've got to carry on. Hmm. So I think on a mental level, I, I mean, obviously I can't speak for on a technical level what Kanye brought to his game, but I think on a mental level, I certainly got the impression that they're very close, and and that the player really values the coach's input on on his game in that respect. That's.
1: Something he mentioned actually in his first interview, you know, with uh, the the Arsenal website, where he said, basically, I've known this guy. We've stayed in contact down the years. Uh, I think it's fair to say that things haven't necessarily gone as well for him as he might have liked. Having left Denmark to go to France to play for Dijon, and he lost his place in the team there, and and things haven't gone well. So he's not arriving at Arsenal on the back of being, uh, you know. A, consistent, solid performer at another club. So talking about what uh, Kenya can bring from um, a mental point of view in terms of his psychology, it's quite interesting because one of the aspects of this transfer is that uh, he, as the goalkeeping coach, has pretty much advocated for for Arsenal to sign him to replace Emmy Martinez, who's gone to, to Villa and who's very popular. But he's coming in, I guess... You might say with, with confidence kind of low, considering how things have gone for him at, at Dijon. So, if there's that connection between him and uh, Inyaki Kenya, then it, maybe it augurs well to to sort of pick things up again and start uh, to get
4: going. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I hope it. I hope it turns out like that. I think if they've had that relationship in the past, I think there's probably no better coach to help him rekindle the form that he had in Denmark that, as you say, is slightly eluded him in France. Um, I think he still, if we move on to the Iceland national team, perhaps Mm. on, on the back of that, I think he hasn't perhaps had the impact on the national team that people would have expected two, three, four years ago. He hasn't managed to displace Hannes Heldersen, who is the... The uh, the goalkeeper who's been in the national team for about a decade, despite the fact that he's now about thirty five, thirty six, um, and, and I think I think the reason for that is not necessarily a reason that should worry Arsenal fans because I think Runer Alex is very good at playing with his feet. Mm. When he was growing up, he he played, as I understand, Norchland in Denmark played quite a uh, possession based. Uh, Ajax-Barcelona was the way he described it to me, style of play, which meant that he had to adopt a very um, a very aggressive position as a keeper and take a lot of responsibility in terms of starting attacks. Now, anyone who saw England versus Iceland either in 2016 or the other week will know that Iceland do not play in that way at all. Mm. They're very much about keeping a low block uh, from a goalkeeper's perspective, Pretty much everything about the game, about their their role in the team changes, apart from you know shot stopping and basic things like that.
0: Mm.
4: So I think I think he perhaps has um, struggled to adapt to that very different style of play, which demands things like long long distribution, more direct mm. distribution, which are which are things that he hasn't really practiced throughout his club career, but. Like I said, I think those are the those are probably the attributes that have led to Arsenal signing him. So I don't think that's necessarily a cause for any particular concern um, for Arsenal fans.
1: Yeah, I mean the 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 ability or the the requirement to play out with your feet is now um, fundamental, I think, to the way that Mikel Arteta has. Uh, set up his team um, you know they want to play out from the back the goalkeeper very often is is a part of that um, and I think obviously the uh, the arrival of Vinyaki Kanya as the goalkeeping coach as somebody who can work with players who are comfortable with their feet is a significant part of it as well I mean that 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 aspect of his game is something that he spoke about in his interview as well. He said he's a modern goalkeeper. He's good with his with both feet, etc., etc. What about you know the the pressure that he might feel as you know somebody who did go to France and had a place with a, a side and lost that place and fell out of favor there, and now is coming to a club like Arsenal, who even if Things aren't going quite as well as they used to. It's still a big club. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of expectation. And also the fact that he, he has been brought in to replace somebody that the Arsenal fans really loved. Emmy Martinez had a fantastic end to last season and played a big role. And he'd been at the club for 10, 11 years. People really took him to their hearts, if you like. So there are layers of pressure that he is going to have to deal with. You know, I don't think he's going to be playing Premier League football unless Bernd Leno gets an injury, but there's Europa League football, um, League Cup, FA Cup, potentially, uh, all of which um, comes with the pressure that that exists at a big club anyway. Just in terms of his character and his self-belief then, is this something that will phase him, do you think?
4: Not particularly, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, He struck me as a very very grounded and pragmatic individual mm. so I don't think he'll be overwhelmed by the situation he finds himself in I think go, linking back to what we were talking about earlier I think the fact that in, in Yaki Kanyar he's got a figure mm. there who he's already already worked with extensively I think that will help that transition into, into a bigger club it might not might not be quite as uh, daunting as it otherwise would be mm. Um yeah, I, I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't have any particular concerns about that. I think he's he's a very calm individual and, and, and should adapt fine.
1: Uh, finally you you mentioned that he's involved with the, the common goal. Um, I can't remember what, what you would call it, organization, is it? It's it's Juan Matter's um set up there. So what what's his what's his thinking behind that beyond I guess just sort of some sense of social responsibility or, or duty?
4: Yeah, so he he was quite an early adopter. I think he signed up in 2017, which was when it was um just getting off the ground. Mm. And I think he he talked about how his both of his parents were quite philanthropic and quite uh socially conscious and how that rubbed off on him. Um and I I, I was really impressed by how how reflective he was about his role and his platform as a footballer. So if we look at look for a comparison with another Arsenal player. Bayern is the obvious mm. the obvious one who 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 also seems very aware of that. Um and Runer Alex talked about having this uh he talked about how it was important to him to be playing for more than something more than just himself. Mm. So I suppose he was quite quite romantic in a way. He talked about how Maradona had not only played for Napoli but had Kind of carried the hopes and expectations of quite a, an impoverished city on his shoulders, and I think that kind of that kind of uh, idea of of, of of representing something more than just a player in a team, I think, appeals to him. And yeah, I, I found him to be a really enjoyable person to speak to, and one of one of the more like I said, reflective and, and, and deep thinking people that I spoke to throughout the, the whole process of, of researching the book on Iceland.
1: All right. Well, look, we hope that deep thinking translates itself into uh, deep performances for Arsenal. Um, Matt, thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks. You can find Matt on Twitter. He is McGinn93 at McGinn93. The book is called Against the Elements, The Eruption of Icelandic Football. It is published by Pitch Publishing. And your local independent bookstore would be absolutely delighted to get this book for you. If you can't order it via their website, just give them a call or drop them an email, and I'm sure they'll order the book for you and make sure that you get it as quickly as possible. Now more than ever, it's really, really important to support local businesses rather than gigantic, evil, behemoth corporations who just make their owner even more of a billionaire than he is already. He doesn't need to be any more of a billionaire, but the guy or gal who runs the bookshop in your area, in your town, wherever it might be, they need the business. They're paying their rates. They're paying their taxes. They're trying to pay their staff in the most trying times possible. So if you want to get Matt's book or any other book, please, please think about getting it via your local independent bookstore. Perhaps it's a little less convenient, but where are you going in a hurry these days anyway? So, look, hopefully you will enjoy the book about Icelandic football and hopefully you'll feel good in your heart knowing that you're keeping the economy going in a positive way for for society and not just one billionaire guy definitely doesn't need any more money, that's for sure. Right, time to give you a chance to win one of two t-shirts from 4T.com. They've got these lovely embroidered little logos. They've got some Arsenal ones on there, of course, which is why we're giving them away. There's Thierry Henry, there's Dennis Bergkamp, there's Tony Adams, and more. The Battle of Old Trafford, Martin Keown doing his thing. So to enter the competition, all you have to do is answer this very simple question and send an email to competition at arsblog.com. Dot .com, right? The question is 29 years ago this week we signed a striker who went on to become the club's leading goal scorer of all time. Tell me the name of that striker. I know this is a particularly difficult question, but maybe, just maybe, you might be able to figure it out. Send your answer, please, to competition at arseblog.com. Competition at arseblog.com. I give you the winners on next week's show. For those of you who would like a discount on any T-shirt from 440.com, you can do it by just using the code arsblog at checkout. It gives you 10% off. So there you go. OK, on Monday night, we travel to Anfield to take on champions Liverpool. We've beaten them in the Premier League recently. We've beaten them in the Community Shield recently. But this is a different kettle of fish altogether. There are Premier League points to play for to get a Liverpool perspective on this one, as well as finding out what they've been up to, what the expectations are for this season and more. I'm delighted to welcome from the Anfield Wrap. It's Neil Atkinson. Hi, Neil. Hello that Andrew. How are we doing? I'm all right, thanks. Uh, I want to ask you about, um, obviously, winning the title after such a long, Um, a long time without having won the title what was the experience like doing that in the circumstances in which it happened because obviously fans are not allowed in stadiums anymore as Arsenal fans we have some experience of it this season as well and you know with the FA Cup it's usually this kind of joyous occasion so obviously winning the title brilliant an amazing thing for Liverpool Football Club and for Liverpool fans but you know, how did it feel in the context of not being able to sort of share that uh, sense of communion, community within the stadium
5: and everything else? I think the first thing to say is that you, 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 Arsenal supporters will know well enough, you win the league you don't win the league on the last week of May mm. you win the league in January you win the league in December you know I was at Leicester away on Boxing Day when we beat them 4-0 and at that point they were second in the league and Liverpool had just come back from Qatar and I knew then that was the day and, and that end that away end knew then that Liverpool were going to be champions that it was all but done and if you had any remaining doubts there's a goal against Manchester United scored by Mo Salah where he runs through the length of the pitch and then the game after that we go to Wolves and we win 2-1 at Wolves so you sort of knew by the end of January Liverpool were going to win the league and you'd had that experience it really was just a matter of ticking the games off and even then when it was remote in, in the first place, it was great, obviously, to get the job finished. That felt fantastic. There was a little bit of, you know, on the night, it was confirmed against Chelsea. There was a bit of people spontaneously sharing that with one another. I went down to the beach. You forget that Liverpool's got a lot of coast. Mm. I went down to the beach. We had a great time. Fireworks. Uh, someone played Ness and Dormer whilst we put a rocket on. And I'll genuinely remember it in a way that is different from it being another big night out in town, if you see what I mean. Mm. Where it's now getting difficult, I think, is the idea of not being able to go to an away ground or go to Anfield and watch the champs. Mm. And that's where I think now for a lot of Liverpool supporters, even for those who are, who are scattered around the globe, there's a lot of people who come to Liverpool for one game a season um, and have a fantastic time. And there is, you know their, their supporter experience is as valid as anyone else's. But that is obviously jeopardised. Those people might now may never get to watch this team play as champions. We all might not get to, but at mm. least we've got a chance with season tickets and so on. And so I think in general the the vibe is now, I think for a while everyone was able to power through, everyone was able to be optimistic, everyone was able to make the best of it. But I do think there is a bit of a thing now where I think one of the reasons why Liverpool supporters are a little anxious is the general sense of anxiety with the idea of Well, what if we never get to watch this team when they are champions? Because that is now a really valid point. Yeah. Yeah, I
1: mean, th- there's something... Similar um, going on with, with Arsenal in a way, like fan the fan experience, of course, fans who come for one game a season and, and now can't or maybe had plans to come and mm. can't do that. But we have, you know, in um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, for example, a, a, a world-class player who really dragged us over the line towards the end of last season and the team yeah. won the cup and we have, uh, you know, a lot of experience of winning the FA Cup in recent seasons and it's great and I'm not downplaying it in any way. But Aubameyang you know, his goals um, in the semifinal and the final um, helped us win the cup. He's signed a new deal. Um, He is loved and cherished by the fans. And it feels like a real shame that there isn't that interaction that, that you normally have. And I know they, they have social media, they have the ability to be contacted or reached by fans and also reach fans themselves. But it's, sort of colder it's more impersonal if you like and and the the sort of warmth that generates from the stands from uh, you know fans towards a player towards a team the same way that it would happen with Liverpool fans you know the first game of the season when you're taking to the field as champions it's not there and it's it's a shame for fans it's also a shame for the players as well and, and for the teams
5: Yeah, it's the play all the way through last season. It was the players, you know, towards the end of the season and when football came back, what I was saying whenever I was doing anything was it's the players I feel sorry for in that we all got to get drunk after we beat Leicester. We all got to go and have a big party after we beat Manchester United. And have that moment of communion together. The players, for them, that happens on the open top bus tour. That happens in the ground Mm. immediately after the things won, or it happens after the first game of the season when they've just heard their names be sung as champions for 90 minutes. And that's what they haven't got to have. But we're now at the point where we haven't. And this always sounds, you've got to be, we're not careful because I think it's fine, but it sounds very 1950s. We haven't got to acclaim our heroes. And that is genuinely, you know, when you think about the emotional enterprise that we all go through, that mm. sort of give and take, it, it, it there is an emotional transactional part of this. And the moment of acclaiming your heroes and them paying it back to you and then some matters, and it's mm. part of this enterprise. And I think that that's something which which is being lost. And it isn't as simple as, you know, a lot of this stuff sort of, always for me ends up being an argument uh, an unnecessary argument at times around the sort of the value of supporters or it being a a monetary value but there is an an emotional exchange that has disappeared and it is a two-way one and I think all the best football clubs have that two-way experience and all the football clubs that are functioning have that I remember uh, Arsenal Man United one of the early games under Arteta last season and Lacazette almost falls off the pitch he's exhausted but the crowd are up and they're absolutely like the salute in the performances Just put in. Mm. Granite Jackers' redemption doesn't make sense unless players, unless the crowd is present. And it does across the course of that game and so on and so forth. And there's lots of examples of this, and that's what we're losing.
1: Yeah, look, and I think it would be wise to make the point that this isn't just something that's predicated on success that only oh. teams who have had success can can deal with because every fan of every club is missing that connection with their team you know yep. whether they're successful or not you know the, the 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 highs and lows and the emotions of football exist whether you're at the bottom of league two or you're at the top of the the premier I league so. so look it is one of those things we're all having to deal with in our own way and it's one of the difficulties of football um you know particularly this week I was watching the the Carabao Cup game um when Arsenal beat Leicester. And there's, you know, I think we can deal with the lack of fans much better for Premier League games in a way because there's still this kind of, whether it's residual or not, there's this sheen of glitz and glamour and interest in the Premier League. But when you're watching a Carabao Cup game, a cup tie with no fans, no atmosphere, no um, piped-in crowd noise or anything like it, it's very difficult to get um, invested in it the way you might do usually. But look, that is the way the world is right now. And fingers crossed we come through it uh, quickly and fans can get back in and everybody can be safe and, and healthy um, and things can get back to something approaching normality. What I want to ask you is, Liverpool's last two seasons have been pretty extraordinary in terms of what you've produced in Premier League terms, you know, to have done what you did in the season that you lost out to Man City by a point or whatever it was in the end. It was an incredible run of form an incredible points tally and you still didn't win the the title and obviously last season you put that right with um you know a brilliant um consistency and uh you know motivated I would say in some ways by that hurt by missing out um the previous season so the consistency that you've shown is incredible how can Liverpool
5: keep that up Can they keep that up? What is going to be the driver for this season? I think the drive for the season is in part what we've just been talking about. I think they will want to be top and clear when we can all congregate as people again. I think they'll want to be champions for that. I think it's almost, it's one of the easier sells in terms of retaining the title. I think that very few sides have retained the title in the last sort of 12, 13 years. Mm. And I think one of the reasons why is the emotional going into the well. I think for Liverpool at the moment, I think the, the driver is you need to be top for when these people can next see you. You need to be champions for when these people next see you. You need to have that moment, the very moment that you haven't had got to have Mm. you can you can use that you can have that power you because we haven't had that communal moment yet the managers talked about doing a parade um as and when we can do a parade and it's safe to do so and he says we'll do it whenever we want we make the rules he's right about that but it looked after in a parade if he was sixth Mm. so i think that there is a there is a thing there where i think that'll be part of what that squad's all saying to one another but i also think there's a this is one of those areas where our clubs, and I mean that with, with, with reference to Liverpool and Arsenal, I actually think have stuff within their DNA which says you go and do it again, and you keep doing it, mm. and there'll come a point where that will stop. But I think that you know there is something where you are, if you want to be, if you want to be genuine Liverpool legends, for instance. Well, there's lots. You know, Paisley sides won six titles in nine years. That's the that's the that you can you can say that that's the benchmark. Now listen, I actually don't agree with that, but I think that that's how you keep this side get it stay, staying consistent and get it go going again and working it all through. And I think you're also able to say, lads, a fair few of you haven't even reached your peaks yet, your personal peaks in terms of age, in terms of what you're actually capable of. You know, Liverpool last season were Liverpool are the best team in the world at nil nil. I'd even say Liverpool are the best team in the world at one nil in either direction, uh, but they're the best team in the world at nil nil, and that's what they've done brilliantly last season. Liverpool won a lot of. games, Games. But they won a lot of games by one goal. They didn't play mm. brilliantly in tons of them. They were just remarkably consistent, as you say. And I think that there'll be a lot of players there who will feel as though they've got at least one more very big season at Liverpool. Um, and I think that that's what will also be driving them, that idea of personal attainments as well, as well as the collective. What about,
1: you know, when, when you are a, a, a team that is trying to um, retain a title, how you keep things fresh and how you... Um, build your squad um, to sort of keep players on their toes is really important. Now, in the the sort of market that we're existing in right now, the the financial aspect of what clubs can do in the transfer market is is, is still sort of up in the air. Sometimes it feels like nobody will be able to do anything. But Liverpool have spent quite big. Um, you know, they brought in Diego Jota from Wolves, Tiago, yep. who is a sensational signing from Bayern Munich, and I think really adds. Uh, an extra layer, an extra dimension to your midfield. There's a left back has come in. So how pleased are you with the recruitment, um, that Liverpool have carried out thus far? Because I, I feel like, and I see this a bit with Arsenal fans and we have, I think, bigger issues to solve than you do in terms of what we do with the squad. But there is this laser focus from fans on how a club operates in the transfer market. Um, in some ways, it feels a bit distorted or a bit too weighted towards what a club does in a transfer market um, without looking at what a club does
5: on the pitch in a way. Yeah, I think that that's really a significant point and one I'd agree with despite the fact that I'm you know, very pleased with the, the signings and the business Liverpool have done. Uh, on the general sort of side of this, Liverpool, like all businesses at the minute and it, like all football clubs, we think a lot about cash and it feels as though Liverpool have sent Kiana Hoover to Wolves um, to effectively pay for the first year's cash for Diego Jota in terms of what's in the public domain. Thiago is only five million quid up front and Shimikas is offset by the fact that we've let Dejan and go. Hang on, five million quid up front? Really? Yeah, that's all that was for Thiago, yeah. The only but they've only paid 5 million quid of the transfer fee in the first year. So I think Liverpool have been very clever. And it wouldn't surprise me if, in a cash flow sense, Liverpool actually end up year one on the business they've done this summer Mm. uh, making money and bringing money into the club now there'll be other fees attached to that agents fees and signing on fees and so on but I think Liverpool are always trying to be clever with the business in terms of keeping it fresh Liverpool bought Takumi Minamino last January uh, and Mm. they've promoted Nico Williams and uh, Curtis Jones to be more prominent members of the first team squad uh, as youth players who've come through Nico Williams maybe isn't entirely ready for big games at right back yet uh, but uh, that said I think he can you know there's certain games you can select for him over the course of the season Season. And then there's also Harvey Elliott in attack as well, uh, who may well have a role to play uh, across the course of this campaign, even though he's only 17. So Liverpool have been able to to freshen it without without feeling as though they've got to go make six big money signings. And I think that that's valuable and worth pointing out. In the general sense, I do agree with that, uh, you know, f- the work Mikel Arteta does the best work he does will actually be with a core of the players who he inherits at least for the first two or three seasons whilst he's Arsenal manager and that's worth remembering Mm. the idea that managers should come in and sell 11 and buy 11 I think you can do that but you can do it over a period of three years and in the meantime you've got to be able to get results but you've also got to be able to get your ideas and your culture and your wants and needs over to footballers and I think that Arteta looks from the outside at least to be doing that brilliantly and I think the focus on transfers on the new shine anything is something which I think doesn't help uh, managers when they're in in certain positions and it doesn't help teams I don't think either I I think that a lot of what Klopp's done brilliantly you know for instance Lallana's only just left this summer but he had Henderson he had Milner within there he had Roberto Firmino when he first came in Coutinho who obviously moves on but he had a lot of players Divock plays Klopp's first game he's still at the club he might move on this summer Mm. but the point is that he's got a tune, and not just got a tune, but made all these players that I've just mentioned at one moment or another or consistently excel. And that, you know, you, we cannot sort of see football. The purpose of football is not to identify weaknesses within the squad to be addressed in the transfer market. The purpose of football is to win football matches, and managers have to do that with the players that are in front of them. And you cannot change 11 of them in one window. There is, that doesn't Unless it's Roman Abramovich, that does not yeah. happen and I think that that's sort of it's important for us to remember not least to go back to the other the thing that we started the emotional aspect of all of this you know we should be into these players these players are important to us their journeys their lives they, they should be important and I, I think having a sort of a philosophy that just wants to cast one or two or three or four or in some extreme instances 14 of them aside at the first time of trouble well that's not how you build a football team mm-hmm.
1: yeah well i think that's uh, reasonable there are some players i think in a squad uh, in a team perhaps that hasn't performed to the level that you would like who who look fans do need to see the back of in a way mm, they've absolutely. had their journey. Their journey has come to an end. They need to get off the bus, if you like. Um, unfortunately, uh, some of them uh, are, are kind of difficult to move for various reasons. <laughs> but um, if you had an area of concern about the Liverpool squad, or do you have an area of concern about the Liverpool squad? What might that be?
5: Oh, I mean, listen. You can make an argument we we could do with a fourth choice centre off, but when James Tarkovsky is going for you know when Burnley asking for fifty million quid, it's quite difficult to make an <laughs> argument around. You know, we'd be a Perfect fourth-choice centre half for Liverpool, James Tarkovsky, but obviously he wants to start every week. But also Burnley can can request that sort of money from and another Premier League mm. club will pay it. So you know, it would be nice to possibly have that because uh, Matip is is quite injury-prone, uh, and and Joe Gomez loves a bit of a knock as well at times. So right-sided centre half there uh, is is a minor concern. Um, we've got to see how Jota does I think that could solve the idea of having someone who can challenge and add to the front three I think that can help massively Um, and as I said before you know I think it's a big and I think we saw it in the community shield I think it's a big ask uh, for Nico Williams in certain games this season to just step up and be second choice fullback uh, on the right hand side, um, I think we can manage his minutes and manage his opponents, so he's not exposed as he was in the Community Shield. You know, it's a, I, listen. I'm sure he learned a hell of a lot from it, but mm. you know, Obama Yang is not a footballer. You want to have your 11th game against, especially when there <laughs> might be a mild question mark about your pace so you know i think that that's i think that that could well be a, a thing as well from liverpool's point of view but for now they will say nico williams is the is the, is the second choice uh, option behind trent alexander-arnold if Trent Alexander Arnold broke his leg for three months, I suspect a midfielder will be repurposed and sent out to right back to cover that for that duration of time. But as it is for now, you know, for instance, we've got a we've got the Carabao Cup game against Lincoln tonight. Nico mm. will start; he'll do really well. Next week, when if we get through, uh, when we face one other in the Carabao Cup, Nico <laughs> will start. I suspect he'll do reasonably well. And it wouldn't surprise me if, for instance, when we get our Champions League groups, the third the bottom seed, if they're a weak inside, Nico starts those ones to rest Trent Alexander Arnold's legs. Mm. That that's how it'll work, uh, but you know you can easily say, well, if something bad happened to Trent, that would be something that Liverpool, where Liverpool would suffer.
1: Yeah, well, look, that's the thing about having really good players in key positions; that yeah. it's very difficult to to match that kind of quality in your your second choice. I think Arsenal have a similar issue with Kieran Tierney and say, Saikalasenec, for example, at the moment. So, yeah, you know that's that's a reality that you know many clubs have to deal with. Can I ask you a bit about Arsenal? I mean we've beaten you twice in <laughs> in the last couple of months now the one at the emirates was um Fairly fortuitous. Liverpool made defensive mistakes, which you weren't making at all before you won the title. And look, that's normal. I think players switch off a little when the title is won and the circumstances were a little odd. Community shield was a very interesting game. It was good and competitive. You know, you can chalk it down to a preseason friendly if you like. And I think that's fair at the same time though, when the two teams are out there, they both wanted to win. You could see that. Um, So it was a good competitive game. What, what do you make of Arsenal now as opposition um, in comparison to maybe 12 months ago? And just your thoughts on what Mikel Arteta has done since he's come into the club.
5: The first thing is the five-two-three that Arteta played against us in both of those games. There's a fair body of evidence that the games we've found toughest over the last 18 months or so, sides have played five-two-three against us. You know, Arteta wasn't the first manager to do it, but I would argue that possibly he's done it as well as anybody else has, if not better. You know, Wolves play that shape all the time, uh, but Arteta's Arsenal nailed it uh, against us in both of those games, really. I know one was a bit fortuitous and involved a bit of hanging on, but I still think that that's, you know, that's creditable. And Arsenal carried a threat right the way through that, game. Game. Um, I think having the bravery to keep two back in attack in wide areas to give our fullbacks problems is, you know, to to get players to actually undertake that when a side's under siege. I think is it takes it shows that you know demonstrably good coaching. And Arsenal did it very very well in both of those games. And I think that that's a way you can, at the very least, put doubt into Liverpool minds. Is to is is, is, to, is to play that shape and do it the way in which Arsenal did it. And I think that that's you know worthy of worthy of comments. Last season, you turn up third game and i and under Emery mm. and you'd won two games uh, one against uh, against two sides that one can expect to finish in the bottom half of the table um, one arguably possibly a little fortuitously and I absolutely always knew we would roll Arsenal last season this season it feels very different um, to be honest with you and the reason why is because as I mentioned before when Lacazette limps off the pitch against Manchester United there is no shadow of a doubt in my mind that firstly Arsenal will turn up to Anfield exceptionally well organised and with a plan but part two of this really matters all the players will be bought into the plan mm. And that's what I expect to see. And they won't just be bought in, but they'll give absolutely every last drop of energy that they possibly have in order to execute it. And I'm not expecting, you know, to see Arsenal become demoralised at any stage of the game. And I'm not expecting them to to shy away from the execution of the plan at any stage of the game. And that's why I think it will be a really, really tough football match. I'm expecting, you know, I expect Liverpool to win. We we played 19 games at Anfield last season. We won 18 and the one Mm. we drew was against Burnley after lockdown and after we'd won the title as you said before so listen Arsenal Anfield sorry is a tough place to go even if there's no supporters in you know there's li- literally Sadio Mane signed for Liverpool in the summer of 2016 and he's never lost a league game at Anfield. Get out um, really? Yeah yeah because wow. we, we lost one towards the end of his first season but he was injured at the time so he's literally never lost a league <laughs> game at Anfield Neither, neither's Mo Salah neither's you know Fabinho neither's Virgil van Dijk the list goes on these players have never lost a league game at Anfield so I'm obviously it would be mad if I wasn't confident sure. but the one thing I know is that Liverpool will be getting a scrap and they will get to, quote John Barnes, 90 minutes of sheer hell from Arsenal. They'll get no peace. They will be uh, bullied all over the pitch where Mm. Arsenal can do it. They'll try and do that. And I think that's what's different from what I can see from the outside. I think this is an Mm. Arsenal side who are fully committed to every word that comes out of their manager's mouth.
1: I think you're right. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but the law of averages suggests that it's got to happen at some point. These oh, it guys are gonna, yeah, yeah, a yeah.
5: <laughs> It's a, Sort of, clease <laughs> hanging over your head, isn't it, you know?
1: Well, you, you've made it happen now, Neil, so I thank you in advance <laughs> for the three points we're going to so pick up. will kill
5: me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, it's going to be a big game. It's uh, very early in the season, but Arsenal versus Liverpool, a kind of top-of-the-table clash. I know we're over, yep. overthinking this, but it's good to have it back. Uh, thanks a million for your time. Really appreciate
5: it. Thanks, Andrew, and as ever, all the best for the podcast and everyone listening.
1: Thank you very much indeed to Neil. You can find him on Twitter at Knox underscore Harrington and at the Anfield Wrap, which is at the Anfield Rap with a W dot com. Not a lot else to say because this has been a pretty long episode and we have a, I guess, what you call a free weekend because we're not playing until Monday night. That means that the Arsecast Extra will be on Tuesday. So myself and James will be here after the game at Liverpool to discuss whatever goes on at Anfield. Hopefully we can make it three in a row. Hopefully this is the first game that Sadio Mane loses at Anfield. It has to happen at some stage. Just has to. So, you know, it might as well be Monday. Just get it out of the way. Then you can reset, start again, go on another run, etc., etc., and everything will be hunky-dory, especially from an Arsenal point of view. Anyway, we'll see what happens. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. Thanks for listening, as always, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
2: Now on ITV, it's time for the latest installment of your favorite aristocratic family. Let's find out what's going on at Jewsbury Hall. Mr. Greenlily? Excuse me, Mr. Greenlily? Oh, yes, Mr. Butler, sir. What can I do for you? Lord Brendan has asked me to ask you if you could accompany him in the drawing room as soon as possible. In the drawing room, sir, but I am just a humble gardener who does gardening in the garden. We do be having turnips for hands and that and all. Mr. Greenlily, please don't ask questions and just go to the drawing room. As you wish, sir. I better take these wellies off, though. Lord Brendan, Mr. Cartwright Butlerington said you did want to see me, the humble gardener. Oh, Mr. Greenlily, come on in. There's something I, Lord Brandon, have been wanting to talk to you about. That's right. Come on in. Sit over here. Actually, come on. Sit on my lap. There's a good boy. You're a good boy, Mr. Green Lily, aren't you? You're a very good boy. Who's a good boy? Such a good boy, Mr. Green Lily. Bark for me now. Pardon me, sir. You heard me. Park for Lord Brendan now. Did Lord Brendan say stop? Rough, <laughs> <laughs>